Welcome to another episode of Mental Health Matters, the podcast that helps break down mental health stigma as well as has just generally really good conversation and education about mental health. And as always, we try to have very entertaining guests that can just talk. So today I want to we apologize right away to let you know that that guest will not be here. He will not be here. He will not. That was oh, you are so I'm stuck st- with me. Stuck with you. And you are <laughs> Travis Terrell. I am Travis Terrell. Right. So we are live radio. Indeed. Have well, been part of We Are Live now going on three and a half years. Wow. Three and a half years. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Now, what'd you do before that? Now, before that, I actually worked in Jefferson City. I was a legislative liaison uh, for a state rep uh, from, I believe, the 73rd District, which includes uh, Ferguson, Florissant, Hazelwood, half of North County. So wow. I worked basically as a gopher. I did a lot of communications uh, with the media down in Jefferson City. So, so you've been I, around the block. I've been around the block. You've been I around have. the block. Yes, indeed. Wow. So, so far, uh, well, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Oh, now this is uh, a, now that's a great uh, question right out the gate. The ultimate dream was to be, of course, the starting center fielder for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, so that kind of went away by age of eight. Eight. No, really? <laughs> no. I know. I, Jim um, Edmonds took your spot. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I used to always want to be a sportscaster on ESPN. Uh-huh. I was a big ESPN kid growing up. Um, the time when we were growing up is when 24 hour sports news truly became a thing. Yeah. And for a kid like myself, I absolutely was obsessed with it because um, we didn't we didn't always get all the basketball channels, but I was a huge Jordan fan. And the only time I could watch all the Jordan highlights was on ESPN. Oh, nice. Yes. Nice. So, okay. So we can agree on Michael Jordan, maybe not the Cardinals. Yeah, that's fair. Michael I Jordan. completely understand. That's all good. So was, uh, was, uh, Michael better with the Horace Grant regime or the Dennis Rodman regime? The Jordan I loved the most was during the Rodman regime, uh-huh. mainly because Jordan was a little bit longer in the tooth and they had done so much winning where you begin to wonder how can Jordan continue to elevate his game when it's almost expected for him to win each and every time out. And I garnered more respect for his game because he was able to raise his level of play as he got older, as his competition got stiffer. And then he was around a cast of characters that yeah. I can only imagine what life was like inside that locker room. In fact, I believe ESPN is doing a huge eight or 10 part series on those Chicago Bulls. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Talking about like they're sitting down with Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, Dennis Rodman, talking about their time together. So I'm really looking forward to that. But I think that was the Jordan where I was, I was just in awe of because it's one thing to be great. It's one thing when the entire world expects you to be great and you still live up and exceed some of those yeah. expectations. Well, he improved. He changed his game. He became a shooter. Yes. You know, instead of just dunking every single ball, he yes. became a shooter. He became about defense. But, you know, with, with the Bulls, Phil Jackson. Yes. Right? So, you know, a lot of people always say, like, well, you know, Phil, of course he could win all those uh, championships. Look at the people that he had. Of course he's going to win. But it's like – you got to have skills. And with when you listen to Phil Jackson talk about some of the Zen philosophy, mm-hmm. mindfulness, I mean, he was doing that stuff before it was cool even. He yeah. was. I, I, and I, have, I still have a huge admiration for Phil Jackson. I, I think that for anyone, especially in this day and age, that has coached on any level, especially high school or college, 
you you have to deal with a ton of egos and you have to work on an individual level with each of those athletes in order for everyone to be on the same page. I cannot imagine what he <laughs> had to go through. Like you're talking about like Scottie Pippen um, wasn't the easiest person to coach. No. Michael, Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan. Then you had Dennis Rodman and you like, those are massive egos. Yeah. Even Steve Kerr, Steve Let's Kerr, be honest. like yeah. it, like yeah. you just had a, a yeah. locker room of guys that were incredibly competitive, very passionate, very smart. Um, and they were not about BS. Like those guys, they had a high BS meter. Uh, Jordan would brag about how he, like he would know right away whether or not the person he was interacting with was someone he can truly trust. So not only getting those guys to trust you, but then to buy in what you're trying to do yeah. after you had already won yeah. three championships, I, I think is why he's considered one of the greatest yeah. of all time. He's got to be. He's got to no be. No doubt. So, uh, sportscaster did not work out. So that's why you're stuck here with me. Uh, yes. Yeah. Th and here I am yeah. podcasting Pod years later with this guy <laughs> about mental health and stigma. But I'm excited about this conversation because yeah. when you're on our show, we kind of delve into it a little bit and I am excited to have an open conversation about it because, uh, the comments we've had on our show, we talked about how the stigma, uh, is kind of greater to an extent in the African-American community. So I'm looking forward to having this yeah. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about that and you know, you're an African, can you prove you're an African-American? I don't, person? I have ID, but I don't, yeah, I don't no, even trust that. No, okay. Yeah. So you can't trust anybody. Can you? <laughs> right. You can't trust anybody. So, you know, when we talk about mental health, you know, first of all, of course, everyone has their own baseline of mental mm -hmm. health. And it's up and down. Some people have a diagnosis and an actual illness. And some of us are just going through a rough time, yes. you know, so everything is just up and down. Right? right. So, you know, with it, you know, one of our, our purposes to the last week of February, black history mm -hmm. month, right? We're like, okay, let's get into a little conversation yes. about mental health and race because we want to keep the conversation going yes, just of outside of February, you mm -hmm. know, because what happens a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of for all these different days or months that there's We acknowledge a, it and then yeah. it's over and then yeah. we move on. So right. we're going to like keep it going into March. I'm down with that. So, you know, when we talk about, and, and from a, from a standpoint of, you know, right, white privilege mm -hmm. and not understanding. So from, I get you, you worked in Jefferson city, mm -hmm. interesting place. Oh yes. You're basically an entrepreneur. Yes. When you think of it from this standpoint. Mm -hmm. So being an African-American male, your experience, I'm sure, is different than, say, a white guy like me sure. um, working. Sure. Know? So I guess one standpoint I want to kind of get into today a little bit is how come, what role does mental health play in race? You know, like every oh, day yes, you yes. live, you live with something that I don't live with. Right. I think as far as the culture I grew up in a fairly Christian conservative household. Um, we joke on our show about this aspect of my life growing up uh, because uh, Chris and others don't truly believe it, but I went to church four to five days a week. Mm -hmm. um, we would have prayer service and gospel choir night and Friday night prayer service and Saturday morning service and then Sunday school wow. and then Sunday church. And then we would come back for a Sunday night prayer. And so we would spend a lot of my time growing up inside the church. My grandfather ran the church. Uh, my father was a preacher. 
Uh, my mother was an usher at the church. Like everyone was involved with the church in my family growing up. And so being, being that part of my culture growing up, it was, if you ran into trouble or if you're having problems at home or having issues at school or some issues with your relationships, you would go to the altar, you would pray, and that would be essentially it. You, there mm -hmm. would be some blessed oil, we would fellowship, and then we would be told to get into our Bible. Or it was simply that the remedy for any trouble that you had in life mm -hmm. would ultimately, you have to come to the church or you go into your Bible in order to find those solutions. From a spiritual standpoint, that did provide some of a foundation for me. The thing is, as I got older mm -hmm. and I no longer wasn't going to church as frequently as I was when I was younger, um, you found that not everything that you needed was in that Bible. Uh, not everything that you needed was in a Sunday morning church service. And then you begin to wonder, okay, how do I go about in discussing some of the issues that I think I have, who do I discuss it with? Because um, it's not part of your norm. It's not part talk. of my norm. Yeah. Now, uh, not, not all my black friends were like this, but a lot of them also grew up in the church. So it wasn't as if I could just turn to my right or turn to my left and talk to my friends about it because they were going through same situation. And so it wasn't until like, I think halfway through college when I was at a forum and I believe one of the university psychologists, a black woman, I, I, I hate that I forgot her name, but she broke it down to me as, look, you have a broken foot or you have a messed up shoulder, you go see a physician. It may not be as bad as you think it's going to be, but you want to get eyes on it. You want a professional to take a look at your injury. Why wouldn't you do that with your mental health? And so that's when I go, I, the light bulb finally went off from me. It's like, oh, oh yeah, that, that would make sense you because that's the, okay. Yeah. Right. And, and because the stigma would be growing up that the only people that saw those type of doctors, um, really had something wrong with them and they came from bad homes and they, you know, there was this very interesting stigma around it that only like, Oh, you're, you know, put you in the straight jacket. That's what, that was my thought going into college. What discussing mental health was about. Don't make your family look bad. Either. Right. Also, and that was another thing. I was like, well, I can't, I don't want to be coming out of a clinic. And then someone from my mom's church sees me coming out and they go, I saw your son leaving. And, and it, it was a, a lot of it was my upbringing. I don't think it was purposely. I think that was just our culture growing up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was challenging, but seeing uh, the unique thing about it was seeing other African-American students at the University of Missouri where I went um, come to that same head where they all again grew up in, in the church. They grew up in a culture that kind of side-eyed mental health, mm -hmm. but we all were going through similar issues and we all came to a similar conclusion that what we're seeking as far as a solution for what we're dealing with isn't just in this Bible or inside this church. There are other things out there that we need to explore to truly figure out what's going on. Well, you know, and sometimes a spirituality, no matter what faith you are, mm -hmm. a lot of times people will say, well, I've been praying about it. I've been praying about mm -hmm. it. And but sometimes, you know, you got to look for your own sign right. or the action part of it. Cause right. Sometimes it just doesn't fix it, right? You know, and uh, maybe the mindfulness part of it is very helpful, but 
ultimately, maybe that spiritual side is pointing you to go get help. Exactly. Professional help. And, and I think it did. I think it did give me the confidence to go. Um, because one thing my mother always taught me is, you know, have that conversation with God. Like, hey, when you're ready to pray, you're sitting down, whether you're driving in your car or you're in your dorm room, have that conversation. And I felt like in college, having that conversation, just praying about it even led me to, okay, go, go seek out that help. And that over time allowed me to become a little bit more comfortable in discussing it and addressing some of the issues. So you're right. I think having that spirituality foundation helped me in my mindset to want to explore other remedies to make sure I'm doing what I can to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And that's the bottom line. We right. all have to take care of ourselves right. and have those steps to that. So do you think, okay, so one, you're a male, mm -hmm. two, you're an African-American male, right? Right. Do you think those two experiences from a mental health standpoint um, come together and just kind of affect? Oh, you? yeah. I, I, it absolutely does. I think growing up, I felt as if I had to prove everyone that what you were given as far as what a black boy or a black man is from whether it's the media or movies or books, I had to make sure I never fell into any of those stereotypes. So I took a lot of that burden on my own shoulder at a young age to make sure that when other white people saw me, they saw the exception. They didn't see what they were given in the media or in the news every day, another black kid, another black man locked up behind bars. So I felt as if I carry that burden of, I have to be exceptional in their eyes in order for them to treat me with any level of respect. So that kind of distorted my socialization, if you will, as I grew up, because I felt as if I was carrying the burdens of an entire race on my shoulder every time I was in the company of my white counterparts. Mm -hmm. So whether I would hang out with uh, my white friends or out in the suburbs or in a predominantly white setting, I always felt not only was I carrying my family name, but I felt as if I was representing an entire race. race. Yeah. And that, yeah. <laughs> and that kind of, and, like, and yeah. so you kind of, as a young age, I convinced myself of that and it really added unnecessary pressure on me as if growing up in general doesn't come with its own pressures. And so I think for a long time, resentment began to build up because I always felt, man, I don't think there's anything I can really do that truly makes much of a difference at how people may perceive me. Mm -hmm. And so th doing those mental gymnastics began to become exhausting over time. And so it can be very exhausting in that when, when something happens, there's a national story, it's almost rooted in a lot of black males to run to the defense of a situation because there's always more to it, but it feels as if they've been written out as soon as the headline hits the airwaves, uh -huh. as if, oh, they, well, he, he deserved it. Yeah. And so there's another internal battle where now you're going to class or you're going to work and you're hearing these conversations of people talking about Mike Brown and people talking about Ferguson. And so now you're taking on that added pressure of trying to defend where you came from and, and talk about the black community and talk about the struggles that becomes exhausting. So then, so 
it's almost like with that objectivity, like I think you were describing this mm -hmm. when like you can be objective and you can look at both sides, but yet there's this part of you that needs to go. I just, I need to go to this side first because yes. it's like, cause I know what's going to happen. Yes. Everything's going to come down. So yes. now I got to take this other side and defend yes. my race, my culture. Right. Wow. And especially yeah. there was, uh, you know, when we, when the, when Barack Obama decided to run for president, it was such a proud moment for the black community, mainly because uh, the community had, been essentially producing these type of leaders, these type of influential CEOs and presidents and moguls that have had a great impact on American culture. And we were just excited to be able to finally have that guy on the stage for the world to see. And then the campaign happened and you growing up, you see all the videos of, you know, uh, Selma marches and the dogs and the fire hydrants. And you you go through, you see those and you always say to yourself, or at least this generation has said to itself, we won't ever let that happen. We won't ever let uh, the government just push around us the way they did our grandparents. And so to see a black man like Barack Obama run for president, to see him sometimes get pushed around and especially because of his, uh -huh. and see his family get pushed around. It really, it, it opened my eyes as to, oh, oh, this is what it's, oh, okay, this is what we've been reading in our history books. This, this is, real. is yeah. real. And so now being in that moment, you're like, okay, how do you handle this? You know, like we've seen the way our, our ancestors and our parents and our grandparents have handled it. Now it's on our shoulders. Mm -hmm. So carrying around that burden, some of the pressures that come along with that, it, 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 it truly weighs on you after a while. And, and it, and I would imagine that it has greatly affected the mental health of a lot of African-Americans in this country. So when you talk about that and that's, you know, carrying that mm -hmm. on a daily basis. So, you know, I had, I had one job in my life. I was working residential treatment and it was, I mean, it was just you carried it with you, right. right. With, with kids and mm -hmm. the trauma and then just working in that environment and then I remember leaving that and then there was this like ah, moment that I wasn't carrying that mm -hmm. around with me anymore. But for race, that's not something you can let down. And you really can't. And it's tough because you, it's important to care. And, but at the same time, uh, I can, a lot of my friends who were in some very uh, high profile positions, what they did for a living, they had to take a step back because it, it's, it's something that you want to turn off, but it's very hard to do. And it, because you feel as if the moment you turn it off or take even the smallest break that gives someone the window of opportunity to say, well, see, he doesn't even care that much. Yeah, traitor. Tra yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Or someone's like, well, obviously it's not a big deal because Travis hasn't said anything about it. Uh -huh. Or it's not that big of a deal because my black coworkers haven't said anything about it. And generally when that's the case is because we've probably talked enough about it till we're blue in the face to where we just don't have the energy literally to talk about it any further. And so that's the added pressure that comes along with that, that even when you don't bring up something or you don't go deep into a conversation, a lot of people will then take that as, oh, well, it must be okay because the person that normally would speak out on it isn't saying anything. Yeah. And it's usually because the 
pretty tired and they just need a few minutes to themselves. Yeah, because it's a burden. It it's is a, a burden. huge burden. So then, you know, when you're carrying that, and that's a very, when you talk, so when you talk about, I guess, lack for a better term, toxic stress, mm -hmm. right? When you're talking about toxic stress, that's living in an environment um, day in, day out, that's, that's just high stress, mm -hmm. right? So when you talk about race and you talk about racism, to say that a lot of African-American people are living in some environments of toxic stress, even if they're not living in poverty. Right. That, that's, that takes a toll. Because there's, there's an expectation as well, and there's also an expectation internally. So, for example, I, I know what my grandparents did to get my mother to where she is, and I know what my mother has done to get, to, to get me to where I am, and I understand some of the societal things they have had to deal with to get me to this point. So a lot of black kids my age or black men and women, when they get to this point in their life, they feel like they have to reach that point because of how the people who have come before them have given up so much for them to be there. And so uh, we carry around the burdens of our grandparents in the sense that we want to make them proud because they did everything and Lord knows they did everything to get us to this point. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to underwhelm. We don't want to come up short. We want to make them proud and make sure their effort doesn't go in vain. And that's also an added pressure because again, you have to be, it's almost like a comedian that has to be on all the time, no matter if he's at a bar with his friends or at a restaurant and someone from the public comes up to them and they don't make them laugh. Well, that guy's not that funny. He's not that. It's almost like, like, again, you have to yeah. be on all the time and doing that it becomes exhausting. It mm -hmm. just drains you after a while. So right now it, 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 it's a very interesting time, I think, in the African-American community in addressing mental health, because I think the younger generation it's becoming a little bit more forward with it. They are now starting to confront their parents and their ancestors about, hey, I know the way you raised me, but here's, a, here's also something we can truly discuss as a family. I wouldn't say most families are there, but I, I have seen the conversation happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge step for the African-American community. I, I would imagine that the next five to 10 years, more families can have that open conversation about addressing mental illness or mental stigmas or just mental awareness with their kids, even if they come from that huge church background. Well, you know, and you, you think about stigma in general, just mm -hmm. across, you know, across the board, all races, all society, it's there for whatever reason, mm -hmm. the media's portrayed it. And, right. and, you know, so one, it's just hard to break through that. But then, too, when you think about some of the, the things you admire about the African-American culture mm -hmm. is that, that church um, mm -hmm. family, yes. uh, family itself, yes. um, extended family. And so trying to break through some of that, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you think are some ideas on how to integrate and make talking about mental health Ooh. okay? See, that's a good question because there's this thing where... And most families, I, I wouldn't just think it's exclusive to black families, but specifically in black families, you keep your business between us. Mm -hmm. And so Irish families too. Yes. Yeah. So taking your issues and burdens and talking to a stranger is frowned upon. I think the way to break that, I, I, and, and it's another thing as well with my family, myself in general, 
we will keep things internalized. We will see a situation. We may briefly comment on it, but we'll internalize it, keep it to ourselves. And for a long time, especially in college, I thought, well, that's the proper way to handle yeah, things. That's what you do. All Until you know. it all, yeah. of course, obviously over time builds up. And then out of nowhere, you're almost seeing red. I, I would love for... I would love to, in order to break that down, I would love to see more honest, open conversations mm -hmm. about it. And I, I think we were at the point where it's, I think we're seeing too many people and their lives, young lives, get cut short because they're not properly handling some of the stress and conflict that comes along in their life. And I... I, I would imagine going to enough funerals to young black men and women should be the line in the sand for a lot of families because it ultimately comes down to having a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these issues, a lot of these young black kids are, they've been almost taught to just keep it to yourself, bottle it up, but it, that's has shown to be incredibly unhealthy and for anybody, right? For anyone. For anybody, yeah. And so, and, and the funny thing is, the conversation is, it, it eases almost 60 to 70% of the pressure that's been on a person's shoulders. Like, I remember talking to my mother uh, a few years ago about uh, seeing a therapist. And while she had her misgivings, having the conversation was the biggest step of it all therapeutic and that, itself therapeutic in itself. Exactly. And so I think just being able to, I, I'm not saying that every parent's going to be gung ho about their child seeing therapy. I wish they were, but I think just being able to tell your parents, look, I'm going to see a therapist or I feel like I think I should see a therapist or I've been talking to a counselor or something to that effect. I think just being able to express that, is huge for a lot of people. So I would hope that young people are at least able to do that as they go through their trials. So number one, it's just that communication yes. to start with, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that, and, and I do think, you know, overall millennials, right. Mm -hmm. And even the, I don't know what the generation zillennials, is that be after I don't, that? I think that's after that. that. I don't know what they'll come up yeah, with. Yeah. You know, cool. so hopefully it's going to keep getting better and better, <laughs> right. but you know, for for more minorities to go into being counselors, mm -hmm. you know, cause even with that, Oh gosh, you know, yes. Uh, I mean, it's predominantly white mm -hmm. female when mm -hmm. you look at some of the social work schools. Um, and so being able to recruit folks. So at St. Louis counseling, St. spelled out Lewis counseling.org. Check us out. <laughs> nice. um, I worked that in there. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, trying to recruit minority therapists to be able mm -hmm. to, you know, be able to meet the need because, you know, as a clinician, I feel I can help everybody. I've worked with so many different cultures, right. but at the same time, I know sometimes it's a lot easier to talk to somebody who looks like you. Of course. You know, so be, when we talk about trying to get into stigma and breaking that down, sometimes it's good to be able to talk to someone who looks like you. Absolutely. Just being able to have a familiar face in a room or someone that may have a shared experience issue uh, goes a long way because you want to be vulnerable. You want to open up. And I think being able to look across and see a black man or a black woman 
just psychologically just puts you a little bit more at ease. Not to say that a therapist of any other color or race uh, wouldn't be able to help you, but it, it certainly goes a long way. And again, you're trying to break down those stigmas and you're trying to get people to trust that this is a way that can help you through what you're going through and to have a quote unquote trusting face or something that's familiar across from you goes a long way. So yes, that, that, that goes, my, my therapist wasn't uh, black, but uh, nevertheless, I would, I've had friends who've had black therapists who are just, you know, they're, they're head over heels over them because they're able to walk into their office and it isn't as if they have to re-explain mm -hmm. where they came from or re-explain the culture or re-explain some of the stress that they have to encounter every day. And not having to reintroduce yourself and what you're about to someone, I think, truly makes the process a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we talk about, uh, so at the agency, we're talking a lot about racial equity and trying mm -hmm. to build racial equity into just our, our programming and, and just make it better mm -hmm. than what it is. And so a lot of times, you know, we're starting to have these conversations um, around the table to start talking about shared experiences right. and what it's like uh, to be a female working in a, with all males, right. um, African-American male working around all white females, you mm -hmm. know, all these different aspects that we're trying to bring to the table. And so at times, you know, you can see people just trying to understand mm. It, you know, and yes. as therapists, right. like we're all supposed to be able to put ourselves empathy, right? right? Put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else. Right. So, you know, when we're talking today, you know, you've said several things to help me try to put myself in your shoes. And I think that's one of the beauties of this podcast as well is to help people understand what one mental health is, right? Like to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Right. You know? But two, you know, I think there's still these questions about like, well, you know, when you talk about white privilege and mm -hmm. at times you know, with our society, right? There's a word or a phrase that's then it. it becomes yeah. a buzz yeah. and then it that's loses it. its like right. importance. Exactly. You know? But I think, you know, hearing you talk brings a couple questions to mind. Okay. So when we talk about, uh, for me as a white guy to understand w what it's like for you to try to get ahead in the business world. Mm -hmm. And I started having this uh, recollection a few weeks back too, when I was talking to a couple of female uh, therapists, right. and they were talking about like, every day I think about being a woman, that I'm, I know I'm a female. And every day when I go to work, I'm, you know, and I'm like, I don't really think about being a dude every day, sure. you know? But, so I guess on that standpoint, you know, is that something you live with every day that because there's certain aspects of society right. that still is like, hmm, you're a black guy. There, I think what, how I was raised is that you, you're going to have to do a lot in spite of. And so I, I've always been in the mindset that, that that's a, a free space on a, on a bingo card. Like that's going to be there. That exists. So how do you either make it work in your favor? Or how do you work around it? How do you adjust? And so... It's something that the only time I would say it frequently rears his head when you're ready to you're trying to make that next leap. Um, uh, we we would some of my friends growing up, uh, excuse me, even in college, we would joke about they'll let you get so far. Uh, the system will let you get oh so far. So when you get to that level, if you will, in an industry, um, how do you get to the next level? Because there are going to be basically barriers put in place. Uh, because the system finds a way to protect itself. Uh, when the white privilege, we, we talk about it a lot on our show, um, 
it, it, it does have that negative connotation that comes along with it. Uh, but as we began to break it down to what you just alluded to is that it's basically going through life um, having not to experience certain things where other races have to. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in the back of your head, you, you sometimes go into your situation and you, you do wonder about it. That can cause some stress. But at the same time, you really want to give people the benefit of the doubt. You truly want to believe that there's a system out there that's set up for you to get your best shot. Being an entrepreneur, there are just so many mountains to climb where any type of slight or any type of no, I don't necessarily have time to reanalyze and discuss whether or not that was racially motivated. There are times where it can be completely blatant and you see it from a mile away, but when you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to make things happen, some things work, some things don't. I would like to think that the things that didn't work for us, the, the people who said no to us was because they just didn't see it. Didn't like you, your right, services. Right, didn't yeah. like my services yeah. or what we offered ultimately. So I think as an entrepreneur, you, you truly don't have time sometimes as a black entrepreneur to, to reanalyze every encounter and engagement because I, I, I would like to think at the end of the day in this capitalistic society that showing results is all that matters. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that a person wouldn't cut their nose to spite their face to, or to, I truly, I screwed that up. Yeah. And I spite their nose to <laughs> cut your ear yeah. and stab yourself in the neck. You're an idiot, Travis. But the fact of the matter is yeah. you would think someone wouldn't do anything against their own interests just because they have some type of racial bias. Yeah. I would like to think that. So, so yeah. the way you've set it's your uh, schema, so to speak, the right. way you look at it and that, 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 cognitive skills that mm -hmm. you've kind of implemented for yourself. So when you talk about maintaining your mental health mm -hmm. and to kind of cope with some of that, it's just your outlook. Yes. So, which is a very positive coping skill. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's, it's just the way that, and it's all, it's again, picking your battles. It really is picking your battles there. Again, there may be a moment where someone's, you know, for whatever racially just doesn't. And Chris and I have our theories about, why we left the last radio station a couple of radio stations back we have our theories but we didn't sit there and go um well that has to be the reason this is it we said it's variable it could be likely but we still have a dream we still have aspirations so we can't stop on this let that bother us and keep us from reaching our goals so i think that is ultimately the mindset of most minority entrepreneurs in that okay, that's likely to happen, that someone will show some racial bias, but if we truly still want to live our dreams or get our company going the way we want to, we still have to keep pushing forward. So you stay goal-focused. Stay, yeah. we have, you gotta stay goal-focused. I think that's, I, I think that is, for me, um, like I'm a, I'm a big results guy. I watched the Academy Awards this past Sunday, and I, I look at an actress like Regina King. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm a huge Did you watch 227. Yes, I grew up, up watching 227. Me too. And I've seen Regina yep. King. Yep. I grew up with Regina yep. King. And so I would imagine being a black woman, a young black actress in the 80s and 90s, she went into many auditions. And I'm sure she came across a lot of studio execs that 
black woman can't play that role. No, she can't be this. A black woman should look like that. I would imagine she encountered that almost every year of her working career. Uh-huh. Regina King wasn't going to let that stop her. And I'm sure she'll be the first to tell you that she absolutely knew she went into rooms where she would imagine the casting director didn't think she had any business being in there. But her goal then today was that I'm a badass actress Mm -hmm. and I'm going to, I'm going to star in these movies. I'm going to star in these TV shows. And I think that's ultimately how most African-Americans operate in that. Yes, we are going to come across these challenges, but I want to be an athlete. I want to be a businessman. I want to be an Academy Award winning actress. So I'm still going to find a way to get yeah. to that goal no matter what. You follow the strategy to yes. get there. Seven seconds. Have you been watching, watching her? And I that? have not watched oh, that yet. Now, the thing about Netflix is that there are 900 shows that I absolutely have to catch up on. And I'm only you, four deep. You might want to start with her. You might <laughs> want to will. start with her. All I, right. And I, and I love those stories. Like just watching the Academy Awards this past Sunday, there are so many people that were on that stage that, uh, and I see Ruth Carter who did the costume design for Black Panther. Like she talks about in a previous podcast, some of the things she had to endure. Again, being a costume designer in 1960s, 1970s Hollywood. Wow. You know, yeah. so you, you go, oh, Oh, you really, oh, you really went through it. And here she is now, one of the most revered costume designers in the industry. So ultimately, at the end of the day, we recognize that we're going to have to go through that jungle. But ultimately, we want to get through it. And so I think knowing that that's the goal ultimately helps people cope over time. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Now, you... You mentioned earlier, you know, you worked in Jeff City for a little while. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there political aspirations with Travis Terrell? Oh, my you know? God. There is no political aspirations uh-huh. whatsoever, mainly because I have done things in my life that have been documented <laughs> and recorded. And so it ain't happening, even if I wanted to. I recently filmed a shower scene where I'm eating a cinnamon bun and drinking a 40 ounce. I'm almost certain whatever political opponent out there is waiting for that is rearing hey, to go. But at least you own it, right? At oh, I did own it. own it. I, I tell you what, I enjoy Jefferson city because I, I, I love politics. It's so weird to say, I know people are probably rolling their eyes, but I, I, I do. I don't know how it happened because I don't come from a political family. I think for me as a young kid, again, I think I I love rising stars. And the first rising star I remember seeing on TV growing up as a kid in the early 90s was William Jefferson Clinton. And he was a he was a legitimate Uh rock star. I didn't know any better about politics. I just knew that guy's running for president and he's on the Arsenio Hall show playing saxophone. I want to know more. And I think maybe that's how I got drawn into politics. But Bill Clinton and Arsenio Hall oh, brought Arsenio. you in, right? Yeah. And it was so weird. I was—I remember going, "Hey, I know that guy. I think I've seen that guy on the news. Isn't he running for like president?" I was like in second grade, and I remember he's playing saxophone on Arsenio. He has to be the cool mom. You're voting for him, right? This guy's gonna. This guy's awesome. So I think that's how I got drawn into politics. So down in Jeff City, it, it's it's more than just the conversations you hear maybe on talk radio. It is nitty gritty politics. Like it is people truly changing the lives of the folks in the state every day. It was rewarding, but also again, exhausting because there's so much that the parties have in common. Mm -hmm. It blows me away. And so to see it on the ground level, you're like, 
why are we even here? We all agree on this. What are we doing? And it's the part that, that kind of soiled it, if you will, for me was that those who had more sway within their parties, that's where they were the ones who ultimately created the divide. Wow. And it was, it was tough to watch because we would go to these crumbling schools around Missouri. I would go around with these state senators and state representatives and they would absolutely understand the issue and sympathize with it. And then they would come back to Jeff city and it would be night and day. And oh. that, because that's how the game is ultimately played. That's how you decide who has leverage, who has power. And so seeing it up close, really seeing how the hot dog is made. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I was like, I think if I stay in this longer, I'm going to really start to buy into the game. And I don't think that I would have the appreciation for politics if I continued on yeah, this path. That would wear on you. It would wear more. on me. And I yeah. didn't want that to happen. But it was, uh, look, the, the Republicans I worked, I'm a, I'm a Democrat, I vote liberally. But the Republicans I worked across from in Jefferson City, they were just, uh, just as hardworking and just as committed to addressing a lot of the issues that this city talks about all the time. It's just that politics is a very large, expensive poker game. Yeah. And a lot of times, even the genuine players just can't have a seat at the table. And I think that was, for me, just a little disappointing. So there will not be... There will be no political run. I, look, I, I love being behind the scenes. I would love... I, from time to time, I consult... Uh, politically for a few candidates, but outside of that, you will never see me run. Uh, the DNC a few years ago brought up the notion of me running out in Hazelwood, and I, I just wasn't ready because it's 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 the NFL. It uh -huh. is real. It's the real deal. It's the real deal. Yeah. It isn't anything yeah. like uh, you know. I, I loved the West Wing growing up, and so I was. I was like, oh, maybe I can. Oh, yeah. I mean. Uh, President uh, Jed Bartlett, like he did. He I mean, yeah. he did the retail politics knocking on. I'm sure that wouldn't be. You try retail politics in St. Louis, it, you better wear a hard hat <laughs> because if you're knocking on these doors and you say you're running for office, one thing about this city that I do love, they'll make you earn it. They'll make you earn it. You're not just going to knock on someone's door and they're going to the tell you, hey, I'm going to bring. The oh, really? Yeah. T <laughs> tell me how. <laughs> right. And so it's. Back it up. Yeah. I, I don't have the hard hat of the equipment. Or the uh, the stomach, I think, to be able to run for politics, mm. run for a position. So you will just continue to entertain with. Uh, yes, we are live in Midcoast Media. Midcoast Media, Mid we are Media. live. We're growing. It's been a ton of fun. It is rewarding. I I think I joke about this sometimes to my parents. I I tell them, hey, when you guys said uh, go pursue your dreams. Uh, you guys didn't tell me I was going to get hit in the face with a metal bat every day in order to get there. And so it has been an experience. Like I get now why people, when they win awards or they get to their goal, they're crying. They're just, I was like, why are you crying? Yeah. It's the best day of your life. You, oh, you, know. you had a decade of no's and people yeah. slamming doors in your faces. That's why you're, I get it and now. now you can finally move out from your parents' basement. Yes. Yeah, oh my you God. Know, it is. Yeah. It, this has been a rewarding experience. There are days where I'm just like, Hey man, I don't see the end of the hallway. I don't know what's at the end of this. I don't know how this ends. But then you you do have achievements. You have moments where you can share it with your colleagues and you go, oh, this was all worth it. And you're almost like, oh, that really wasn't that bad of a struggle. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't that bad at all. Yeah, I got this. Yeah. I'm Travis Terrell. <laughs>
Well, you know, I, I think we hit the tip of the iceberg a few things today. You know? okay. So at some point, maybe we'll talk some more. Absolutely. I would love know? to. And again, I'm glad we're having this conversation. I hope it continues because I, I truly believe that. Uh, and this is a conversation that we talk about uh, with my friends online. We talk about it openly. Uh, it's one cool thing. We call it Black Twitter. But Black Twitter does a thing where people are openly discussing their mental health experiences. Beautiful. And it has been this weird community from people from across the country starting to share their stories and People oh, are starting wow. to help each other. And it's like, oh, wow, this is really cool. This platform has gone from, you know, just entertainment to people actually helping folks in their everyday lives. So I hope the conversation continues because the fact that we're talking about it again from where I come from, the fact that we're having the conversation is just leaps and bounds from what we're used to growing up. That's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Starting the conversation Absolutely. about whatever topic it is, but just start the conversation, check in, in on each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, communication is the key, right? Absolutely. All right. Travis Terrell, thank you so thank much. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. And you've listened to another episode of Mental Health Matters, sponsored by St. Louis Counseling. Check us out, St. spelled out, Louis Counseling, stlouiscounseling.org. <laughs> Take care. We'll see you next time. This has been Mental Health Matters with Tom Duff of St. Louis Counseling Services. Check out stlouiscounseling.org for more information.